Pray with me, Father in heaven, here we are. We pray that you would reveal your glory to us by showing how right and how satisfying your word is, how penetrating it is, how powerful it is, that it would actually come into us now and transform us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Hebrews and chapter 10. Hebrews and chapter 10. I want to read verses 32 to 39. Hebrews chapter 10, please. Hebrews 10, verse 32, hear the word of God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now... As we come to this particular passage, it's, it's going to be one that's going to call us to a life that I don't want necessarily to say that few of us know, because in bits and pieces we do know, uh, but it's, it's a Christian life. But it's one that I'm not sure we've all been yet tested through. Notice, he wants them to recall something, verse 32, but recall the former days after you were enlightened. He wants them to look back, take sort of a memory lane sort of trip and consider uh, their life because what he really uh, is, is after is to increase their hope in Christ. Notice verse 35, he says, Therefore, that is after he talks about this past event in their life, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward for You have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He wants to increase their hope so that they will continue to persevere. As we said last Sunday, this has been his his desire all along, way back in in chapter 6 and verse 11. And he puts it like this, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's continually trying to spur them on. In fact, in a passage we considered just a couple of weeks ago, he said, we're not to um, stop gathering together. We're, We're to come together often for the purpose of encouraging each other to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And and so that's what he's doing. And he's doing that by saying, now remember a time uh, previously in your life when we saw the evidence that you were followers of Christ. It appears now that some of you slipped back, but, but go back to think about this time and think about your life then and think about what it was really like so that they would once again 
hope in Christ and continue to persevere because the stakes are very high. Notice what he puts in verse 39. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He says, what's at stake here isn't just simply a nice day versus a not so nice day. What's at stake here is heaven and hell. What's at stake here is destruction or preservation. One of the two. No in between. So he says, this is very important that you get this, that you catch on to this. That as we've been saying all along as we worked our way through the book of Hebrews, in this particular message, that the Christian life is intentional. The Christian life is active. It isn't something that's passive. It's something that consumes us. It's something that engages us. And so he's saying, don't shrink back. Because in shrinking back, you prove to be one who's worthy, really, of destruction. And so, continue on. So he's trying to help them. So he's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think back, this particular group of people, at a time when your faith was tested. Notice how he puts the test. He says, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Now, really, this uh, suffering... Uh, to which they were exposed at, at two different sources, if you will. On the one hand, there were those, sort of more common, I suppose, who had been publicly reproached um, and afflicted, as he puts it in the uh, New International Version. It might be a little easier to say ex publicly exposed to insults and persecution. Uh, and it was a public exposure. The little Greek word there for uh, public means theater. Or spectacle. I mean, they were a theater. The Christians were what everybody was watching. And, and in being watched, uh, what was happening to them was that they were being insulted by the culture around them, insulted by the people around them, insulted by their friends and neighbors. They weren't well received, obviously. And they experienced various kinds of persecutions. And, and it's curious just to think about the kinds of insults they may have, have received. It's, it's difficult to put ourselves in their place but we know the kinds of insults that we might receive as believers in Christ, those who aren't very receptive to who we are uh, because of our faith. We may be snickered at or put down somewhat in the context of, of, of our lives uh, because of the way we live. Uh, perhaps it's because of our views of uh, sexual purity. Perhaps it's because of our views of creation. Perhaps it's because of our views concerning uh, the definition of marriage and who is to be married. Perhaps it's the way we dress more modestly, perhaps, I hope, than our culture in general. Perhaps it is that we desire to protect the unborn. Perhaps it's in the way that we talk, that we don't curse, that we don't gossip, that we don't slander others. Perhaps it's because we forgive those who have even hurt us deeply, and the culture doesn't understand that. Uh, most likely, it's not so much because of all of those. It's the reason for all of those. Most likely, it will be because of our allegiance to Christ, because we've admitted our sin and our need for a Savior implied in that by our very lives, whether we say anything or not, is that everybody needs this very same Christ. And it's that against which our culture rebels. And so we may feel the brunt of such insults in that regard. Yet, I have a feeling that this was different. I have a feeling that this was deeper. I have a feeling that this uh, 
was such that people lost their jobs. Uh, that people found breaks in their own family. These were Jews who had become Christians, who not only left their religion, if you will, but uh, also were likely to have left family or been kicked out of families, been considered dead to parents, grandparents, left the culture perhaps, again, lost their jobs. And they were subject to various kinds of persecutions. We don't know when this particular persecution took place. As we look back in the early church and we look back in history, we obviously see all kinds of persecutions taking place uh, towards Christians. We, we find uh, an interesting person, uh, an apostle named Paul, who was on both sides of that coin. On the one hand, he was a persecutor and he would, he would beat and put Christians in prison. He may very well have been the executioner at the death of Stephen. On the other hand, he found himself later on as one persecuted for the cause of Christ, beaten himself, imprisoned himself, left for dead himself, insulted certainly, all for the cause of Christ. We don't know exactly what was taking place here. Certainly, they were imprisoned, some of them at least, uh, because of their faith. And again, it's easy to read over this, and it's easy to romanticize this and think, and not really have a feel for what that is. But remember, it's still prison. They're still being taken and incarcerated. And in those days, most especially, it wasn't up to the authorities who imprisoned you to feed you and clothe you and make sure you were healthy. It was, up, it was, up, it was dependent upon your friends. And so when you were put in prison, there was some likelihood that people wouldn't be willing to associate with you because in associating with you, it would mean that they would be guilty by association. Why are they friends with this one we've just put in prison? And so there was great danger in associating with these very same ones. But they did notice. And sometimes being partners with those so treated, meaning uh, you partnershiped with them, they were your companions. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession uh, and an abiding one. I mean, the situation there was not unlike Nazi Germany, in the sense that when uh, the Nazis arrested someone who was Jewish. When the Nazis put them into prison, uh, anyone who sympathized with them, themselves were likely to get thrown into prison. It was very dangerous in those days, whether one was a Jew or one was a Christian or one was sim simply uh, a German citizen who didn't like what was going on. It was very dangerous in order to associate with a Jew in those days. Well, in these days, it was very dangerous to associate with a Christian. It was very dangerous to partner with them. It was very dangerous to visit them in prison. It was very dangerous to help them because in your visiting of them while you were gone, you would come back and find all your stuff ransacked, all your stuff gone. I don't know if they had spray paint in those days. I guess they didn't. But if they did, they would have spray painted on the walls of your house. Uh, uh, you're in danger. Go home. Go away. We don't like you. You're next. Those kinds of things. And so not only will you lose your stuff, but you'd live in the context of, of that real fear, of that real social uh, ostracism. But the scripture said they indeed partners with them, had compassion on them, and in so doing it filled them with joy. There's an interesting expression I've, someone shared with me recently that comes out of the literature of the Holocaust. 
Uh, a book was written. I haven't read this book. I got all of this from a secondary source. I tried to find the book this week because I like to read things that I quote uh, as much as I possibly can. But, but, this, but this expression is so helpful, at least to me, that I'm going to steal it away and hope that I'm right in my understanding of it. Uh, a book was written by a woman by the name of Victoria Barnett. Uh, the title is Bystanders, Conscious and Com- Conscience and Complicity During uh, the Holocaust. And the question, one of them, that she appears to ask in this book uh, is how could uh, German citizens simply stand by and watch what was happening in the midst of it? She puts, in the midst of their situation, she puts it like this. How could they go about their daily lives while one of the most sinister regimes the world has ever known committed unspeakable, unspeakable atrocities all about them? Well, of those who simply were bystanders who didn't help, she writes this. It seems their lives have always been centered around their own needs. They evaded the intentionality that is the prerequisite for rescue or resistance. They denied any connection between their own lives and what was taking place around them. Now these Christians, we read about in Hebrews chapter 10, obviously didn't do that. Obviously they saw a very close connection between their lives and the lives of the Christians around them. And when the Christians around them were taken off to prison, their connection was so close that they had to go. The the expression in this literature about a person like that is that they experience a disruptive empathy. That is, that there's such a close feeling to the one being hurt that it disrupts their own lives as if it were happening to them. You see, if there's no disruptive empathy in the course of life, no one's ever moved. You can just simply walk right by them and, and nothing's disturbed in yourself. And that's what was taking place, according to this particular author, in Nazi Germany. People had no disruptive empathy. They simply didn't make a connection between me, human being, they, human being. This is happening to them. I need to. It didn't bother them at all. See, Christians need to live with a very deep sense of a disruptive empathy for each other. These people had it. In fact, it's expressed in this little word here. It says, for you had compassion. That's exactly what compassion is. Compassion is a disruptive empathy. Compassion is a a close feeling for another. It means to feel with. It means to be compassionate. I'm sorry, it means to be have a passion with another. Compassion. So that we're moved. We simply can't be bystanders standards, and, and let others hurt in the midst of us. They had compassion. And what is so encouraging to the author of Hebrews is he writes to them, he says, look at this, remember this time. You had compassion. Uh, that's, that's evidence that you were really walking with Christ. That's a good thing. Because you see, compassion is the very thing spoken of about Jesus. He did have Compassion. In fact, many of his miracles, if you read through the Gospels, are prefaced with this little expression, he had compassion. That's the very point of the incarnation. The very compassion of God, the very mercy of God. God looking towards us. That's the reason that, that, that he became a man, so that he could become our merciful and faithful high priest. Notice how the author of Hebrews puts it in chapter 2, verse 17. He says this, he says, Therefore he had to be made, that is Jesus, like his brothers, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful 
and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of, of the people. That is, he's so identified with us that he would be merciful, that he would see our need and be moved to do something about it. And that he would so identify with us, so know us. As the author of Hebrews goes on, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. See, when you go to Jesus and you say, this is how I feel, he'll say, I know. is that amazing? And because he has compassion, he's the epitome of one with a disruptive empathy. That moves him. That, 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 Jesus just can't be a bystander at that point. He comes and helps us. That's what it means to be compassionate. That's what it means to be merciful. And that's the very nature of Jesus. My favorite, and I tell this story all the time, every time I hear the word compassion. So you've heard it. If you've gone to a wedding I have performed, you've heard this, because this is my favorite one, talking about compassion. I always tell married couples they should be compassionate to each other, meaning that they should not just be sympathetic to each other's needs, but be moved to help. You can't just simply watch your spouse. We shouldn't be able to just simply watch each other suffer without getting involved in each other's lives. There was a story about Jesus, Mark chapter 1. He sees a man with leprosy coming down the street. And of course, leprosy was, was the dreaded skin disease. It was a category of skin diseases, all which were dreaded, some which were deadly, all which were very contagious, and, and none which anybody wanted to touch. And generally in that culture, as you know, the person with leprosy would be very obvious that they had leprosy, the way they dressed, the way they walked, uh, their demeanor. Uh, if it was serious, they would have a person with them, around them, saying, don't come near this person, this person is unclean. They would often say that themselves. People would approach them and say, go away, you don't understand, I have leprosy. And when a person would hear that, they would, they would just walk away from them. And, but the scripture says about Jesus, he had compassion and he reached out and touched him. That's it. That's a disruptive empathy. That's compassion. That's saying, I can't but help move because you hurt. I can't help but touch here because you have a need. That's the very compassion of Jesus. That's what they were showing. We see the compassion of Jesus all over the place. We see it when he fed the 5,000 even though he would later go on to explain that he was the bread of life and all of that, his first in, in, inquiry is, where can these people buy food? They're, where can these people get food? They're hungry. Let's feed them. He couldn't just be with a group of hungry people without, without feeding them. We see it in the time that he, there was a man who was deaf who could not hear and therefore also had a speech impediment. The scripture said that Jesus went to this man and he stuck his fingers in this man's ears and he let out a great sigh. Why? There's this sense of identification of the misery of this man and Jesus sighing. Of course, at the grave of Lazarus, he wept. We see the empathy of Jesus all over the place. No better place, however, of course, than the cross. He was disrupted in his own heart and life about sin and sinners. And so he took it upon himself, our sin. 
And the author of Hebrews is saying, good, you, you were like Jesus at this point. I have confidence that, that, that everything that I've been saying to you really is going to work because, because I've, seen this, I've seen this evidence in you. Not only that, I've seen this evidence that you're Christians because Jesus said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples uh, if you love each other. Uh, and they were loving each other in a very sacrificial kind of way. They were willing to let all of their goods go by the wayside. They were willing to take this risk. They were willing to be ostracized by the society just by hanging out, just by identifying, just by visiting and helping these Christians who were in prison. They were willing to make that particular uh, sacrifice, have all their stuff uh, taken from them. Not only that, you remember in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus speaks uh, of their very act He speaks of a judgment where goats and sheep are separated. And the difference between the two, you remember, is that the sheep are the ones who care for Jesus. And the question asked is, well, I never saw you hungry. I never saw you naked. I never saw you um, out on the street. Jesus, I never saw you in prison. And Jesus says, oh, yes. Notice the line, verse 40. And the king will answer, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least my brothers, you did it to me. The very least of the brothers of Jesus, the very least of believers, those in prison, those with the greatest need. He says, when you, when you help them, you're doing it unto me. And so when they visited these Christians in prison, they were visiting, in a sense, Jesus. So he goes, oh, I have confidence that you're uh, really believers. Um, Apostle Paul spoke that when one of us hurts, we all hurt. And they did. When one hurt, they hurt. He says, ah, I see. I see this evidence. But notice, it isn't just they simply helped, but they did it joyfully. Verse 34, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He says, you know, you, you did this, and you did it joyfully. When you came back, and you noticed that all your stuff was ransacked, all your stuff was gone, your life was a mess, completely disrupted, you praised God. You see, joy, oddly enough, is the normative response of Christians to persecution. That's why I said at the beginning, I don't think we understand this. I don't think I do. But joy is the normative response of Christians to persecution. You might remember, all the way back in the early church, Acts chapter 5, Luke writes of a situation when the apostles were all arrested, very early on. The apostles were all arrested uh, for speaking in the name of Christ. They put into jail. In the middle of the night, an angel comes lets them out. And the angel says to them, go back and preach. Well, in the morning, the authorities come to where the prison is. They see there's still locks on the doors. They still see the guards standing there. But when they go in, the apostles of Jesus aren't there. And someone says, well, I know where they are. They're in the synagogue. They're preaching again. And so they go back to sort of rearrest them. But then a Jewish teacher named Gamaliel has this great insight. And he says, listen, folks, if they're not of God, their whole movement will fail. So don't worry. But if they are of God then we're against God. So the authorities decided then not to put them back in prison. They just beat them. Now think about that. I mean, when's the last time you had a good beating? Uh, But they were beaten. 
And the response in Acts chapter 5 is, they left joyful. They left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Same thing happening here. I anticipate, I would hope, the same thing happening with us. But they were joyful. Jesus often spoke of this as well. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. What an odd thing to say. I think he'd say run for cover. But he doesn't. He says rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. You mean my possession is greater than my life. Your reward is great in heaven. What you possess in heaven, what's being kept for you in heaven, your inheritance in heaven is great. So you can rejoice even though your life now is utterly disturbed to the point of you're being persecuted. First Peter in chapter 4, verse 12. says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you uh, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, it isn't strange, he says. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So don't think it's strange, but rather rejoice because you're sharing in the suffering of Christ. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. In other words, if it's so obvious that you're a Christian and not that you're being obnoxious, you're just living for Christ. If you're insulted because of that, you're blessed. It must be that the spirit of glory is upon you and you're reflecting him. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that manner. So the question then is how could they do this? So that how could we do this? And you say, well, Bill, we're probably unlikely to leave here and be persecuted. It's even unlikely we'll be insulted. People rather like us. We're sort of nice people in the community and all of that. And by and large, people like us. Every once in a while we get a derogatory little thing, but chances are it's behind our back, if at all, and we never really hear that. So, so, so why do we even need to think about this? Well, obviously in preparation for whatever could happen tomorrow. But also this, love is always costly. To love another is always costly. And so we have to ask ourselves the questions, what really keeps us from loving another person? What keeps us by noticing their, from noticing their need? What keeps us from, from getting involved? And there's two things, same two things here. One is a lack of compassion. We just simply don't identify with them. There's something going on in them that we're not feeling because you get a sense if we were feeling it, then we'd be there. We'd understand that. We're just simply not identifying. We don't have this disruptive empathy about that particular situation. Or secondly, we're afraid of what it might cost us. And it's that second point that the author of Hebrews deals with here. He says, he says they were able to do this because they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. So that when they came back, amazingly so, when they came back to their homes and found it ransacked and all their stuff gone, if you will, 
they were able to say, we haven't lost anything. They were able to say, we haven't really lost anything. They were able to take this, this sentence and complete and fill in the blank. They were able to say, my possession in Christ is greater than, fill in the blank, whatever it is that they lost. And so they were able to rejoice in the midst of that. An amazing thing. That's why the Apostle Paul could write in Philippians in chapter 3, this very famous passage, verse 3, Philippians 3, verse 3. He writes, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. I put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Basically what he's saying is, I had everything that anybody ever needed to get on in the world. Fill in whatever it is that Americans need, and he had it. Right? Whatever it is that you think an American needs to get on, whether it's money, education, family background, uh, stuff, whatever that happens to be, he had it all. But notice how he puts it in verse 7. He said, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's saying, listen, none of that helped me. And therefore, even though it was gone, and even though when it was gone, I realized I hadn't lost anything. Don't you want to be like that? Whatever that means. I mean, don't you want to be like that? I haven't gone there, really. I don't think. I hope in some ways I have, but... And the question is, how do we get there? What does that really, what does that really mean for us? How can I really have that kind of mindset? And when and if this happens, to be there, how can I have the mindset when I see someone who needs to be willing to give my time, myself, my money, my whatever my emotional strength, whatever that is, to give to help them. How do we do that? Well, I think this first, number one. I think we need to first recognize our weakness in this area. I think we have to first recognize that we love safety. We love our stuff. We love the honor of other people. Uh, we love to have time that's flexible. We love to have discretion over who we are and what we do. Anybody not hold that? We have to realize that's not life. And we have to confess that. And then secondly, I think we need to begin to pray. We need to, be, we need to pray that God will work in us compassion, the very compassion of Jesus. Now that's a great prayer to pray. It's dangerous in one sense, but it's, it's guaranteed in another. Because he's promised to form Christ in us. And so when we begin to pray these things, pray that God puts within us compassion, that is, a sense of a disruptive empathy to where we simply can't be bystanders. We can't walk by when we hear of a need. There's something that tugs in us. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but I can't take care of every need. Duh. 
Certainly we pray for discernment and all of that. But if you're like me, we're probably way behind the curve. There's probably a couple more needs we can be aware of and feel and, and still be, you know, pretty safe and pretty secure and all that kind of stuff. But to pray that God would put within us this disruptive empathy, empathy that we would begin to see life as he sees it, as Jesus does. That when we would see hungry people, we'd go, how can we feed them? When we see sick people, how can we help them? When we see grieving people, we could cry with them. All right? That, that God would give us the very compassion, the very compassion of Jesus. And then he would enable us to see stuff as we should see stuff. That it wouldn't be the very course of our life, that it wouldn't be the thing that we arrange our lives around, but rather that we would trust that we can, that what we have in Christ is greater than anything else. And that we would pray what the Apostle prays uh, in Ephesians, in chapter 1. Notice what he prays. Verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in, in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. That is, that our knowledge of Him would grow so that we know what we, would have, what we have in Him that we would become increasingly confident in the fact that we have a cleansed conscience because of Christ, that we have an inheritance that's secure for us, that at any moment in time, he is in the very right hand of God the Father, making intercession for us, making certain that we are saved, and that his throne is a throne of grace and we can go to it in every time of need, that he's right now working and reigning in such a way, putting all his and our enemies under his feet that we know that we needn't fear death because he's conquered it. See, that's what we have in him. The very presence of God in us and ourselves in his presence. And there's something about that that should be more valuable to us than anything else. There's something about that that if we can grab a hold of it and live in it, then you see whatever else happens, oh, there'll be sadness, there'll be tears, there'll be pain and all of that but we'll also be able to survive with joy. Because we know we have that. So he goes on, so that we can know him. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So we know all of these things are certain. That's our hope. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That we can live like that. Knowing him and all that he's done and all that we have in him, knowing that it's certain we have this hope, and knowing that every moment in time, in every moment in time, the very power of God is aimed at us, at work in us, that we can trust him. So in every circumstance, in every situation, we know I've got Christ. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me and for us. And, and God, I've spoken words way beyond myself. But I pray for me and for us that they would find their fulfillment in us. That we'd be able to love each other and others outside the body as well. Because you've placed in us the compassion of Christ. Christ.
And therefore we will be moved by the needs of others. And we won't be afraid. Father, we won't be afraid to love even if it's going to take time and money. And Perhaps some won't be able to move up the corporate ladder as far because they're just too busy in the lives of other people. Father, don't let us be afraid to sacrifice. For the sake of Christ and for the love of other people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you to stand, please, in the presence of God for the benediction. <clears throat> As I do, I remind you of our Sunday school classes and the various and the sundry things uh, we have coming up this week, especially our meeting on Wednesday, so please be aware of that. The response to the benediction is this, Christ is my confidence, amen. So if your confidence is in Him, what you're saying is I can be moved to help another. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is my confidence. Amen.